unfortunately, sometimes like you have a lot of really fast runners that can bust out a 50k in three hours, which is fast. <laughs> but then they get to a technical technical course and they just get, you know, they're they're reduced to the B team, not the A team, because they don't have that technical skill. Um, but that's just something you know you have to want it. You have to be aggressive. You have to be able to take a few risks. You have to be not afraid to fall and crash. Um, I've broken my broken both my shoulders. I've broken wrists. I've broken ribs. You know, so I've. What about your ankles? I've crashed a number of times. What about your ankles? What about your ankles? Ligaments? No, ankles are good. Ankles are solid. Damn <laughs> um, you! I've rolled. I mean, I've rolled my ankles before, but I've never rolled. The last time I rolled my ankle, that was actually like a real roll where I was limping for a week. It was at Pikes Peak in ni- like 1993 or four or something. And you know, other than that, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely roll my ankle occasionally. I'll, I'll pop, you know, something like that. But it always bounces back, and I just keep running through it. That, my friend, was Carl Speakout Meltzer, and this is the Inspirational Runners Podcast. Hey everyone, hope you're all well. My name's Robbie Marsh and I'm your host, so welcome to the podcast. We have an, an exceptional runner on the show this week. So exceptional, in fact, that he's won more 100-mile races than any other ultramarathoner on the planet. He has also many accolades. I really wouldn't know where to start, so check out the show notes where I've listed a few so you can gain an idea of how awesome Carl Meltzer actually is. As usual, I had no time to prep for this episode, but when you have one of the world's best ultra runners on the line, finding things to talk about is never going to be an issue. In this episode, we unpack the life of a 100-mile expert, training, fuel, mindset, all the FKTs, shoes, etc., etc., and his grounded approach to life in general. This really is just a chat about everything from the speedgoat himself. I apologize for the sound as we had to move to Messenger due to some technical faults, but let's not get too hung up about it. It's with great pleasure I give you Carl Meltzer, aka Speedgoat. And I'm sure you've been asked this a hundred times, like, but what draws you or what initially drew you to the hundred mile race? Well, I think, so I ran my first 100 in 1996, and that was the Wasatch 100. Um, so 20, you know, 24 years ago. And I was, I was suggested to run the Wasatch 100 from a friend at Snowbird, who I worked with. Her husband had run the Wasatch 100, like, multiple times. Like, he's run it, like, 30 times now. But um, he's like, oh, you should do Wasatch. And I was like, no way, I'm going to go 100 miles. But, you know, I started thinking about it, and, you know, I just – I entered the race and I did it and, you know, nothing else was on my mind except finishing. That was the plan. I didn't really have time goals. I mean, I had time ideas maybe, but didn't really have a goal on time. So, you know, I got the race done and hurt like hell. Um, you know, I had a really rough last about 30 miles and, but that's normal. <laughs> so, you know, I learned, but I learned from that. And then, you know, when I was finished, of course, I didn't want to ever run again, but at the same time, two days later, I was like, where do I sign up? So I just looked at my first effort at it as, you know, an experience. And then after that, I I just learned how to improve at it. But then after, after I won the race in 1998, so a couple of years later, and I actually broke the record that year, um, that sort of made me think like, well, this is kind of fun. <laughs> Winning never gets old, right? So uh, I just, you know, I started entering every year and then eventually, you know, wind started to rack up a little bit and I just kind of found that, the hundred mile distance was really sort of my wheelhouse. Um, you know, I ran, I ran some shorter races too, of course, and you know, they were fast and everything else, but I really liked the idea of the hundred because 
there's a lot more strategy involved than just going out hard in a 50K or even a 50 miler these days. There's a lot of strategy. So, you know, you play your cards right and you run a smart race, you have a good chance of doing really well. Um, I think anyone like myself who's won a lot of races, you know, we all have certain gifts. And I, mean, I definitely think that I've, I've been gifted a little bit. <laughs> Um, I think that's fair to say, right? And, and with a lot of runners, it's the same thing. Um, you know, I just kind of like, I usually follow my passion and I felt that that was what I was good at. So I'm like, once I started racking up wins, you know, I had seven, then I had 10, then I had, you know, 14 or whatever, started racking them up. Then I had to start thinking about like, well, who does actually have the most 100 mile wins? I didn't really know. I knew that Ann Tracing had won 14 Western states, you know, so that was at least 14. And the year that I won Wasatch in 1998, she had actually won seven that summer. Jeez. Yeah, and then Wasatch was her sixth win. I think Arkansas Traveler might have been her seventh. But, but at any rate, you know, I looked her up, and then she had she had 2,200 mile wins, so she was technically the leader. And as I got to 14, 15, 16, I was like, well, you know, I'm not dead yet, so um, I'm going to chase her win total, and that you know that became like the focus, and then. When I reached her total, then I hit 23, and then it was like, well, Red Bull. When I was running for Red Bull, they asked me like, what's your, you know, what's your goal? And I said, at this point, this was probably when I was 30, I don't know, 38, 39 years old. I said, you know, I want to try to win 3500s, and and then all of a sudden, you know, rack up a few more. A few years go by, and all of a sudden, I'm at 35, and and from that point on, it's really been like. I mean, 35 wasn't a special number, but from that about that point on, it's kind of like, well, now I have this streak of how many years in a row have you won at least one? And right now it's currently 18, and I'm running out of time this year, so it might end this year. But, uh, you know, I just I just always kind of look forward to another goal, so I have something to look forward to. And, you know, right now my goal is to play better golf a little bit right now than it is to run that much. But, uh, you know, I, my life has always been like that. A lot of things have fallen into my lap. Ran, and I think the hundred mile distance sort of randomly fell into my my lap, and and I actually made a career out of it, which is pretty unheard of, I think, for most runners. Uh, you know, I got lucky uh, a lot of times, but uh, you know, I just love running and just keep doing it. You just sort of make your own luck, like um, yeah, it's pretty unique though. The one thing that thing I find really unique is the way you were, you know, you suffered through your first race, which was good to hear. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh yeah, so oh, I was suffering. <laughs> And yeah. you, ha you have to suffer and learn, but you learn very quickly, like to win that race, like two years later, because generally people that I'm talking to, um, I'm not going to call them normal people because I don't want to imply that you're not normal, <laughs> but in a roundabout none way, us, none of us are normal. If you run a hundred <laughs> miles, you're not normal. <laughs> um, but I have yet to run a hundred miles, but in my mind, I'm a hundred mile runner. In fact, I want to get mm -hmm. to a 200 mile race because that's what I enjoy most is that long distance adventure without the pressure of really eyeballs out, you know, and going to all these different places, seeing these different things. And the race becomes more of an experience than just a race. Absolutely. Um, but I'm struggling to, like this, as you say, like what can go wrong, more than likely will go wrong. And it's, it's almost this, I don't know the right words, holistic or not, but everything sort of needs to connect, you know, in your life as much as it does in the actual race itself to make that happen. And I'm, I'm, I feel I'm sort of like, I'm learning the hard way. There's no damn other way about that. Well, like, you know. let, let me say this, Robbie, about learning the hard way. Um, 
everything I've done in my life, I've learned the hard way. <laughs> so whether it's for building a stone wall, uh, you know, anything in my yard or anything like that, I, I'm, I'm, the, I'm a glutton for that kind of punishment. I've learned the hard way, but I think when you learn the hard way, you learn how to do it better later on, you know, cause you learn from your, your personal mistakes. And that's how I got good at running hundreds. It's like, I don't, I don't think of the hundred mile distance as being far anymore. It's starting to feel far now that I'm 52 years old, but, but that's a different story. You know, before it was like, once I completed the Appalachian trail, you know, which was 2,200 miles in 45 days or whatever, that with that made a hundred miles is like not that far. Like how hard is a hundred mile or when you, when you just did 2,200 and you suffered, you essentially suffered to some degree every day. I mean, some days are better than others, but um, that's, that's part of learning a hard way is really the, the way it is for me. And it was way, it was like that through school for me. Um, that's just how I do things. Um, I, for some reason I like to fail before I succeed. <laughs> um, I don't know why, but, uh, you know, most hundred mile runners that are really good at their sports, you know, you take a Jim Wamsley, he went the wrong way at Western. He learned the hard way, right? Like that was a big mistake. It was just a, it was just an unfortunate mistake. Right. But then he went back the next time and, and he learned from it. And, that's how, that's how I've always learned. And that's how a lot of good runners have learned is, is that you've got to make mistakes and, and you got to put your head in the mix too. You know, you got to, you can't be afraid of it. You can't be intimidated by it. I mean, with all the, with all the clients that I coach now, and I've coached hundreds of different people now over the last 10, 15 years, um, the intimidation factor is probably the, the hardest thing to convince someone that try not to be intimidated by it because you do it, you do it because you're running because you love it, right? You're running through the trails because you love it. And your hundred mile distance is the, um, sort I call it sort of the glamor distance. And once you complete it that one time, everything else will feel easier, you know, but you, but you put your head into it. You, you, it has to be between your ears. It has to be solid. And you have your doubts all the time. You're, you're, you're asking yourself to fail. So you've got to stay positive. And, and when those bad patches come, which they always do, um, you've got to be able to kind of laugh that off. And, and it was hard to laugh off my first couple hundreds, but now, I mean, even in the last 10 years, like if I have a bad patch, which I often do, it's like, I can kind of laugh at it and get through it. And, you know, when people, once you learn how to do that, then everything seriously will become easier. Everyone can complete a hundred miler. It doesn't, you can't let it intimidate you. It may take longer than others, you know, um, for a guy like me, that's, like I say, a little bit gifted, a little bit faster than most. It's, it's great for me, but the people, the real the heroes of the sport are the people that finish the back of the pack. Those are the people that are out there suffering a lot longer than we are. We're all suffer just as hard, but we're, we're out there for, you know, 15 hours less than in the back of the pack. So those people are the heroes. Um, and just, you know, once they get through hundreds, then they realize that it's pretty special. Uh, it's a pretty special accomplishment. What, what do you think it is then? Do you think it's just that innate sense of survival inside us that, you know, when you're suffering and you've never been there before, you know, your protective mind is actually trying to protect you, I suppose. But once you've been through that a few times, then you've a bit more confidence and your mind will let you go. You know you're suffering, sure. but you know you're going to get through this. Talking about it later with your buddies is like the best part, you know, like everybody suffered. Everybody has a story. Uh, it doesn't matter how fast or slow you were. Everyone has some story of something that happened out there. And, uh, but that's why we sort of why we do it to talk about it later. You know, I mean, there's nothing better than sitting after sitting after a race with, you know, 10 of your friends and stuff. And whether they're slower, faster, whatever, just talking about the experiences you had out there. 
It could be seeing something at night. It could be, you know, how great you felt from mile 90 to the, to hundred, which is rare. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, I mean, those are the stories that we, that's why we do it. The stories about to talk about it later, not just when you're in the moment, it's, it can feel like forever, but all of a sudden when you blink and it's over again, and you're like, okay, when's the next hundred or when's the next race or now I can rest or whatever. Uh, it's the stories later. That's what, that's what it's really all about. Yeah. For me, I'm trying to work out the dialogue that I'm going through that I have with myself. Um, I'm trying to learn patience. You know, I live in a very fast paced sort of environment and world and uh -huh. work, corporate world and all that good stuff. So when I'm out there on the trail, um, trying to stay in the moment, I suppose, is a key aspect of r running a long race, like a hundred miles. And it's hard to stay in the moment sometimes because when you do have that bad patch, it's like you want to go home, you know? Yeah. <laughs> down or you want to sit at an aid station or you want to just relax and do nothing and you have to stay in the moment to really to be really good at it you've got to you've got to be focused from mile one to mile 100 and whether that's you know beating down the demons that are trying to tell you to stop that's part of it it's and you do learn that again from you know not from you don't just bust out the 100 mile for the first time it's i mean it's happened in the past with some great runners no doubt about it but but it's rare uh, you know, a lot of the guys that have won a lot of races over the years, they learned the hard way at the beginning and then they just, they stay with it mentally because they just love being out there. If you work in the corporate world and you're in that, like, I'm glad I don't work in that world, but, um, you know, your time on the trail should be just, you know, shut off the corporate world, yeah. you know, go out there and just try to the best that you can to just enjoy the mountains, the trails or wherever you are. And that's, that's really the beauty of just being out on the trails all the time. Yeah, I think that's why I aspire to do 100 miles and 200 mile races, because for me, like a race isn't something that totally exhausts me and destroys me, although it does during the race, but also vitalizes me and, you know, revitalizes me and actually de-stresses my whole body. Like when I come to the end of that race and cross that finish line, like I feel absolutely like I've been reborn again, like, and, like the energy that goes through you at that point, I feel better than I did before the start of the race just because you're carrying all of that, as I say, corporate world and all of that good stuff. So the longer you're out there, the more time you can connect with it and just disconnect. And it feels good to sit down when you're done. <laughs> you know, that's just, I mean, that moment that you cross the finish line is always such just massive relief. And I've seen it, I've seen it many times too, where, you know, runners will finish a, finish a race. It doesn't even have to be a hundred mile, but a race and have this, you know, for the week and a half later, they're sort of depressed, you know, they're like, well, what, oh God, what do I have next? They've accomplished their goal, but they have to hurry up and set up another goal or they're, they sort of go into a whirlpool, like a downward whirlpool, you know, like you've got to like stay in the moment and then move on again after the race too, because a lot of people, they just, you know, they sort of get depressed that they don't have anything else on the plate again, you know? So it's, you just gotta, you just gotta stay positive, you know? And I mean, regarding the 200 mile, I don't know why the hell you want to do that. I, I don't, I'm, I'm actually registered for a 250 mile or in Arizona in May next year. Um, but only be, but I'm really only put my name on that wait list. It's a, it's a long wait list because of what's been going on in the world right now. It's like, you never know what the hell is going to happen right now. So I said, I'll throw my name on that 250 mile list. But honestly, that, that distance kind of intimidates me because, um, you know, I haven't done it before. I mean, I've done the AT, but that's 2,000 miles. It's entirely different. So the 250 mile or 200 mile is 
it's one of the one that you're going to have a lot of sleep deprivation, which is like not my friend. Uh, so, you know, I, but again, I'm stepping into a new world, right? So if I do get on that start line and start that race, I, I'm not going to tell myself I'm intimidated by it, but I have to respect it. You know, I have to respect, well, this isn't a hundred where I'm done in 20 hours. This is going to be like, you know, 60 hours probably. Yeah. Um, and, and that's fast, you know? So I don't really know what to expect. I mean, in a sense, I'm excited for it. You know, in another sense, I'm sort of, uh, I guess I am a little intimidated by it, but I think once I get rolling, you know, and as long as I have the right attitude that I'm probably not the fastest guy in the field anymore, um, that then that kind of feels good sometimes at this point, actually, um, there's really no pressure, you know? Mm. So when you, when you take pressure off yourself to perform at a certain level, uh, sometimes it's easier it's like when you win on when you when I've won a lot of races over my time, right? So every time I was going to a race, I was I sort of had that bullseye on my back. People were either trying to beat me or I was one of the guys trying to win, one of the you know top ten or whatever. And now I don't really have that bullseye on my back, so all the pressure is off of me to to challenge the winner or you know challenge for a record or something like that. Now I just go run free, and sometimes you know I might still be there at the end. Uh, but, but that's the beauty of, of not having the pressure on myself is that, you know, if I don't win, oh, it's okay. You know, um, it's, it's been, I've been, I've had a wonderful career. You can't, you can't deny that. I mean, I've run like 150 elders, the 160 of them, you know, I mean, that's, that's pretty awesome. That's me now, not a hell of a lot, but, uh, but you know, it's been, it's been a great ride. I can't really complain about anything. Yeah. Do you think that that, um, pressure took, well, did it take any of the enjoyment out of the race for you at all? So, uh, sometimes pressure takes takes enjoyment out of it, and sometimes you put too much pressure on yourself to perform. Like if at Western States, okay, here's a, here's a good example for me. Western States, a couple of years ago, I ran it when I turned 50, and my goal was to break the 15 over record, okay, which which I I was I'm strong enough to accomplish that, but I put pressure on myself. I said, I'm going to, this is what I'm, this is my goal. This is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to break this record. Instead of just me going to run the race and just being totally quiet about it, I talked about it a little bit. And all that did was put the demons and the pressure waiting to pounce on me during the race and say, you're not going to do it. You're not going to do it. You're not going to do it. So that definitely, I had this thing looming over my head about that whole day at Western. And I just, you know, I finished the race. I certainly didn't break any records. I mean, I'm glad that I finished, but uh, I, the pressure, I don't do well with, with when I put pressure on myself. And I don't know why I was thinking that when I went to that race, but uh, I do better when I just kind of lay low and, you know, I showed up on the start line two minutes before it starts. I don't hang around t- chatting with people. I just kind of stick to myself and I do a lot better. Um, when I was on the Appalachian Trail, I didn't have anybody really running with me the entire time. Occasionally somebody was, but it was really rare that was better for me because I just, I kind of block everyone else out and do my own thing. And pressure, pressure doesn't work for me. It's, it didn't work really well for us that went to UTMB when Scott Jurek and I and Hal Kerner went there. Uh, the, the eyes were sort of on us from the, from the U S possibly win. And this was years ago. Now it's over, but, uh, none of us did well. Scott dropped out. Hal dropped out. I, I dropped out. Like we're all just, you know, we all, <laughs> so we all failed. So, you know, and Scotty never went back. Hal really never went back to it to give it another crack at it. Uh, 
it's just how, you know, I would, I did, but then the race was canceled during mid race and we never ran the whole hundred. So like, we didn't really have our chance at UTMB, our best, our best run at it, so to speak. But, uh, you know, we had, we had pressure that one year. And I think that was just sort of a mistake to, and it's a mistake, I think for, um, sponsors such as whether it's Hoka or Solomon or any, any, any sponsor to put pressure on an athlete to perform at a big race like that. They should just let them go do it the way they want to do it, you know, and just kind of like, don't put pressure on asking them what kind of time they're going to run or what their splits are going to be or any of that kind of stuff, because all that stuff bottles up in your head and it, it puts pressure on you, you know, um, Jim, Jim is totally fast enough to win UTMB. I mean, totally, but he didn't because, you know, something happened. Um, but, but, you know, sponsors put pressure on runners and, uh, and I'm not the biggest fan of that, but but that's part of the sport, you know. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta, you gotta be in the top of the sport. You gotta, you gotta play the game. Talk to me about um, dropping out of UTMB. I'm interested to hear how Speedgoat actually <laughs> come to a point where he had to pull out of a race. It sounds like what <laughs> I would do. Well, so this was so the first year I ran UTMB. Um, I think it was 2007 or eight or something. Um, yeah, I don't know the exact year, but either way it wasn't as big as it is now, you know, and now we're talking like 12 years later when it's just pretty much the tour de France. Right. But, um, I was one of the contenders that was there to try and win Marco Olmo, who had won the previous year at age 59. Jeez. Uh, he was a contender. Right. Um, and there was a couple other guys, Nico Mermud, the co-founder of Hoka. Okay. So he was in the race. Nico went out fast. He took the lead and was in the lead all day until about mile 70. And I finally caught up to Nico and Marco Olmo was also right there within a minute or two of us. And I was running really well into La Fouli. This is about mile 75. And we went up a little incline into Champex, which was the next kind of stop. And all of a sudden, like, like someone put a couch on my back and said, Hey, carry this up the next hill. <laughs> so all of yeah, and all of a sudden it was like my, my wheels just like my wheels just came off, you know? And I just, Marco went by me. Nico was still a little, Nico sort of went back and forth and then he got ahead of me. And, uh, and I got to Triant at mile 81 or 82 it is. And I was just, my quads were just destroyed. Like I was walking downhill painfully slow because I couldn't go any faster. And, you know, I sat in Triant for a little bit. My wife was there and, and another person. And I just, I'm like, I'm out. I mean, I was at a low point, right? I wasn't at the, the low point that I could just smile and laugh it off and go up the next climb and finish. It was really one more big climb, one more descent. Then it was kind of a cruiser into town, unlike what it is now. And I, and I, and I failed, you know? Um, so that was the first year I had, that was the, the year I had a chance to win UTMB. That was my year for sure. And I kind of blew it. And then we went back two years later and that's when it was canceled during the mid race. And I was, I probably wasn't a contender. Kevin Killian was running that year. Jeff Rose was running that year. Those guys would smoke me. But, uh, but I was sort of a contender in there, you know. I was in 15th place or something. And then the, the rock slide came down. The race got stopped at 18 miles on Lake And then the next morning we ran the 100K race from Cormier to the finish in Chamonix um, after drinking wine all night. <laughs> and we were all hungover. <laughs> but, uh, but I finished it. Um, that was my real last experience at UTMB and it's kind of a shame that I didn't that first year I didn't really succeed because I ran a pretty good race, but it just didn't all come together for me. You know? but it was a great experience. I mean, it was my first time in, in, in the Alps 
So for me, that was like, uh, you know, I mean, the Alps are big mountains, as you know, I'm sure. Yeah. They're bigger than these mountains in, in the U.S. I mean, outside my door, there's a 7,000 feet of climbs above me, right out my back door. And that's pretty big. But the Alps were, you know, twice it seemed like. So it was an awesome experience I had over there. And I kind of wish, I'm sure I could step back to those days, but, uh, you know, those days are over. <laughs> I don't think so. you, I don't think you can complain. Like, um, I was actually no. I did CCC last year. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just those last two climbs, I was I'm sure I was in a lot worse state. Like, <laughs> sort of coming down sideways, my IT band, my stomach had gone. Um, oh yeah. It was one o'clock in the morning. I had two more climbs to go, and I mm -hmm. phoned my wife and said, "Look, I'm out." And she said, like, geez, you can't give up now. Just strap it up and keep going. <laughs> so, right, right. Easier said than done sometimes. Yeah. But, uh, but to be but fair. That's, but that's the thing. That's the thing. You, you, when they push you out the door and you finally get on, you leave the aid station, you get walking on the trail again. And you know what? You have no choice but to stop at the next aid station or, or further, right? So you, you just have to get pushed out the door sometimes. Yeah. And then you start to feel, you know, maybe you don't feel better. <laughs> maybe you don't feel better all the time. That's my dog. Um, but that's just, it's just how it rolls, you know? I mean, it's, it's not a perfect world. Yeah. I was like, um, like I am never doing long distance running again. I'm going back to five K's and 10 K's. This is absolutely shit. Like, um, as soon as I crossed the finish line, I was checking out how many points I had, um, to try mm -hmm. and get into UTMB then. So. Yeah. That's how it works. You know, you just like, I don't know about that 5k, 10k stuff. I, I ran 5k yesterday and I nearly died running eight minute miles. <laughs> but um but yeah i mean it's it, it's very addicting you know and once you finish one it's just i don't know i mean it's addicting that again that feeling you mentioned when you cross the finish line is what we're all looking for which is the, it's the ultimate runner's high especially after these super long races where you've been battling the demons in your head for hours and hours, and hours on end you know at nighttime you're in the woods alone by yourself and you don't know what the hell is out there <laughs> um i just turn my music on and forget about it but you know, those are the experiences that are awesome. I mean, I have so many stories of my buddies that I've hung out with at Hard Rock for years. I used to camp at 12,000 feet. I mean, all those stories, I know them all, you know, um, and I'm, I haven't really shared a lot of them with people, but uh, maybe someday I will, but. You're gonna um, have, you have, you have to share one now. We can't let you away with that. Well, <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I'd, put me on the spot for a story that's a tough one i can always come up with them later <laughs> i mean just just seriously though the friends the friends that i've met through all this stuff like i feel like i know friends all over the world and you know not just through facebook or or you know instagram or whatever or twitter more like i can go to virginia tomorrow and stay at a buddy's house just because we met at a race we're just you know we're like we're friends you know like it was like instantly instant connection and i've met I've met, I, I know, you know, most of the elite runners, even still now when I'm not that fast anymore, I get to know and meet all these people. The, the, the experiences that we have that are really funny are the ones when we're sitting around having a couple of beers shooting shit. That's when you start talking about funny things and things that happened and, you know, and, and how Kerner's issues at <laughs> Chamonix, um, but he finished. It was just chafing, but, you know, just one of those things. And we talk about crap like that. Those are the silly, silly stories that if we're hanging around with those same people, we can talk about later and just laugh our ass off, you know? Because the, um, the longer you go, the more 
sort of unique that community come becomes i think um yeah i've always found when i've had had a good race i come home with a handful of good with a handful of new friends but when i have a really really yeah. bad race i come home with two handfuls of friends because I, right. I get to right. walk and talk a lot more yep and that's and that's that's the thing it's like you never know like you you can be inspiring someone else too you know like I've gone to so many races and people say, Carl, you're so inspiring. And I'm like, why, <laughs> why am I inspiring? You know, I'm just like another guy running out here. That's kind of always how I've always treated my career. I'm like, I'm just another guy out there that I've been very fortunate to be able to do what I do, but you know, I don't like to be treated like, uh, I, and I like an elite athlete. I just, it's just not my style. I'd rather just be another guy that's hanging around doing what he likes to do. You know, and I think that's, I think there's a lot to be said for that kind of attitude. And, you know, you look at some sports when people are up on their high horse. Um, I mean, some deservedly, you know, they can be on their high horse because they win everything or whatever, but that's not me. Uh, I just, I just, like, you know, um, to be able to live my life the way I've lived it is pretty, it's pretty awesome. Just being able to, you know, I was a ski bum at Snowbird for 18 years. I just, you know, I skied every day and I, I worked, I bartended at night. I made enough money to survive enough, you know, and, in the summers, I didn't work much. I just kind of, I made enough money to survive. So I go run races. I go camping with my buddies. I'd hang out in Colorado for three weeks and just basically go for a run every day, take a nap in the afternoon, drink a few beers at night. That was like, that was our training for hard rock. <laughs> um, probably a little more, so a little more scientific now, but uh, that's how that's it was. What, do you think that's what made you as successful as you were is that lifestyle and because it's all about energy, isn't it? Oh, totally. I, I think at the end of the day, my, my lifestyle since I was like a little kid was always go run around the woods, go, you know, find something to do, not something to look at. Like if someone says they're going to a show and that's something like that's something to do to me, that's not something to do. That's just sitting in a chair. <laughs> right. Like for me, I, I was always a kid. I needed something to do. So I always had to have some type of something to move around, like ride my bike through the woods or play baseball or throw my Frisbee around the block. I mean, stupid shit like that I would do when I was a little kid. But I think that definitely, as I got older, I still sort of have that same mentality of like, well, I want to go do something today. So I go out and move around and do some, whatever it is, you know? Um, I, I think that's just, it totally modeled, modeled my life and my career and my passion for doing what I wanted to do. When I moved to Utah to be a skier, um, my buddy just, I was at Plum State College in school and he's like, Hey, let's go to Big Sky Montana next year and we'll go skiing for a season. And I was like, I'm sold. I'm in. I you know, like jumped on the opportunity instantly. And that, that, that changed my entire life because I was in New Hampshire going to school. Didn't really know why I was in school, but I was in school, you know, um, and that, that totally changed my life because I moved to Utah. All of a sudden I was a ski bum skiing a hundred days a year and, you know, wasty powder often <laughs> was pretty cold. And then the running thing sort of came because a friend said, Hey, let's go run up to secret lake, which is just a place near Alta. And we did that. And you know, that started my running career. It was weird how it all just kind of came together like that without even me really being the leader of it, you know? Yeah. You talked about like the ultra sort of community there and, like growing up, how active you were. I think that's what draws a lot of us back to that side of outside world and ultra running. Cause it does, it brings all that back. It sort of keeps that life in you, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, 
they're out there doing something. You're not just, you know, making money so you can bring it to your grave. <laughs> you're out there, you're out there enjoying what you want to do. And that's, that's like the most important thing. And if it keeps, as we get older, if it keeps us feeling a little bit younger, then awesome. You know, I mean, it definitely keeps us in better, you know, a better fitness level. So in theory, we would, we would be more fit when we're older. Uh, and that's definitely, you know, everybody's looking to be, at least most people are looking to be reasonably fit when they're 65. I hope I am. You know, my dad is, he's 78 and he's still hiking up Mount Washington in New Hampshire. He's still doing shit like that. And I hope that when I reach at least 65, I can do it too. Hope I didn't run my body into the ground too hard. But, uh, you know, but uh, I just hope that I can just continue with my life and just do what I want to do most of the time. And my, my wife allows me to do that. She doesn't really get upset if I want to take off for a week or a month or something like that. She's just like, you know, go do what you want to do. It's the same way with, with her if she goes somewhere. That's that's perfect life, you know, to me. It's not how much money you have. It's just it's not, being able to go do what you want to do. It's not a dress rehearsal, Carl. You only, no, get, you no. only get one go at this, like. That's right. And that's right. And you, you get one go. And what do you do? You might as well make the best of it, you know. Um, so you do a bit of coaching, right? See, for the guys that are back in the pack, I'm going to talk a little bit about the struggles and the lessons that I've learned. And having Carl Meltzer here to sort of unpack that a little bit and help guide those people that are learning and trying to transition. Because everybody now, you know, marathons aren't big enough. And actually, 50K is not really an ultra. Everybody's now moving towards the 100K and beyond. So even here in Ireland, um, 100-mile races, 200-kilometer races, they're just getting bigger and bigger. The fields are doubling year on year. Mm -hmm. So like the, one of the very first races I'd done was 100K. And at the time, I thought 4,000 feet was absolutely <laughs> crazy, which is a laugh when I look back now, over 100K. For the you mean for the amount of climb in the race? Yeah, over 100K, I thought it was huge at that time. Yeah. My first 100K. Now you'll do it in a, in a five or six mile race. Um, but during that race, I happened to buy a pair of shoes that were a size too big, and I started that race. Um, halfway through the race, I went to change my shoes and I couldn't fit into my normal size shoes because my feet had swollen that much. Yes, yes, very common. <laughs> yeah, so talk to me about what you do in that situation if you're doing a 100-mile race. Are your, is your body just used to that now, or do you change your shoes through? Um, I do actually use Speedgoats, so um, they're great for that cushioning and that comfort, especially the trails that we're mm -hmm. running when they've got a lot of stones on and things like that, you know? Um is that something you'll do in the race is change your shoes? So no, I, I don't think, I think I changed my shoes in one race ever. And that was, that was the Bighorn 100 where I had, I was running actually in Las Portivas at the time and the traction just wasn't right with this one shoe. So I went with something more aggressive because it's real muddy, but that's the only race I've ever actually changed shoes. And I think, well, I mean, it sounds weird, but like my feet have never really there's been some races where I fit where after I finished the race, my feet were kind of swollen, but generally speaking, um, I've never really had to deal with that. Uh, I've always worn shoes that are, you know, I've got room in the toe box and I run without insoles actually. So my foot sits a little different in the shoe, but, uh, I, you know, I, for me personally, I just suck up the pain and then when it's over, you know, I'll deal with it later. Uh, you know, I've, I've come out of races with blisters and things like that, but, not really that extreme. And I think a lot of that is related to, you know, learning the hard way. Like we talked about that earlier, where 
I know like what size shoe I need to wear. I know what, what I'm feeling. I know what my hydration is during the races. Now I know I know to make my feet swell. Generally it's just water, you know, and it's, it's, uh, I just know how to manage it now because I've done so many races. But I never really had, I never really had that issue when I was running my first couple hundreds of having swollen feet. So I never really, I was like, well, what's that? You know, I had no clue. But and it, but it is quite common though, isn't it? There's quite a few people. Oh know, yeah, it affects quite a lot of people. It is a good tip then, I suppose. You know, to have a half size bigger. Um, yeah, and I think when during the race, there's nothing wrong with changing your shoes to a half size bigger. I just never haven't really had to do it, you know. But the thing is, like a lot of people will do that. They'll have even a whole size bigger. I mean, a good example for me with with feet kind of swelling a little bit is that my first run at the Appalachian Trail in 2008. Now that was, that's a little different. So when I started the AT in 2008, I had, I, I was wearing Las Portivas and they were kind of tight. And I like that tight feeling when you're going across the rocks, like for a short period of time, it's great <laughs> until your feet start to swell a little bit. And then it becomes a real issue. And my feet were ruined after day one in Maine. And that was when I sort of learned the hard way about, you know, all oh, your feet really start to swell and my feet became they just, they were a mess. They got trench foot. It just was horrible. Um, so that's when I sort of had an issue with that, but I was actually up to, when I started in Maine, I was wearing a, the old Las Portiva Fireblades. I was wearing a nine and a half or a 10, I think it was. My typical size is a 10, but by the time I was in Pennsylvania, I was wearing a size 12. Oh, and my, and that was with, and that was with a really extra thick padded, like, um, like insole that we bought at the, the store or something to give me some extra cushion. This is before Hopas, you know? So the, the, the cushion that I was getting out of the size 12 shoe, which was like a freaking clodhopper on my foot, um, that was my foot swelled in that. I mean, that again, a different experience because it's, you know, 45 days or 50 days, but um, that was, that's when I sort of learned that feet can actually swell up like that. Yeah. Some people may not have made the connection already. Um, Speedgoat, Carl Meltzer, and actual Hoka and Speedgoat. But you were heavily involved in the designing of the Speedgoat shoe. And yeah, I mean, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, well, how did that come about, I suppose? And like, what were you sort of looking for when you were designing that shoe? Right, so, so my idea behind that <laughs> came back in about 1995. Uh, about, you know, not really my idea, but let's just say that wouldn't it be cool to have a shoe with your name on it? Like the, like the Air Jordan, right? The same thing, right? So not, I mean, I'm no Michael Jordan, but you know what I'm saying is that he's got this signature shoe, right? So in 90, 90, about 1995, I was driving home from the Pikes Peak Marathon uh, in Colorado, and we saw this jackrabbit run across the road, and I just mentioned the word speed goat, right? Just randomly with my buddies, we're driving home. I'm like, oh, Spiegel. I'm like, I'm like, oh, that's a great name for a shoe. So, you know, whatever. We drive home. We I kind of bottled that up in my head. And then, you know, fast forward 15 years later, Nico Mermud, again, UTMB, right? He calls me on the phone and says, hey, Cal, I have something to show you. You know, I, I do not want to butt in with uh, your other sponsors, but, you know, whatever. So I'm like, oh, yeah, bring over the bag of shoes. So he brings over the bag of shoes. I try them on. I love them. And that's when Hoka was just getting started. Now, so I was their first athlete and I kind of teamed up with Nico and the first couple of years was just, you know, Hoka was just trying to get, you know, in the door, right. Get on the market. 
And so that had nothing to do with the shoe. But once Hoka was taken over by Deckers, um, so, you know, like a billion dollar company, not just two guys with a couple thousand bucks, <laughs> um, then there's some more cash there involved, right? So my idea, I brought it up to the, the president of Hoka at the time, and we walked around the outdoor retailer show at, in Salt Lake City, which is a big, huge outdoor retailer show. And uh, I brought the idea up to Jim, and Jim Van Dyne said, let's do it. And I was just like, wow, you know, like, yeah, cool, let's do it. But, but the timing was great because Hoka didn't have that at the time. You know, each, each shoe company has a couple categories of trail shoes. You've got the aggressive one. You've got sort of the middle aggressive one. You've got sort of the um, less aggressive but more cushy. So it's a couple of different categories. So the Speedgoat, we didn't really have a category with like a, a tough technical trail soft shoe. Like I wanted a soft a shoe that's soft. I've always liked the soft shoe. I wanted to have real traction, not half-assed traction that's going to slide. You know, the knobbies have to go a certain way. You want to use Vibram rubber because it's so much more grippy than anything else. Don't kid yourself. It is. <laughs> um, it's more expensive to use, but it's also a lot better. And so I brought those ideas of a certain amount of cushioning, a certain way for the tread pattern on the bottom. Um, they helped more with the upper because I'm not, you know, I'm not a shoe designer. I just have ideas. And so we kind of worked together with that and came out with the first model. And the first model was, man, it was, I mean, in my opinion, it was okay. Um, but when the second model came out, that was like, we, I think we nailed it now. <laughs> and as you can see, two, three, and four really haven't changed much. The, the tread pattern on the bottom is still the same. And the cushioning is still the same. Because um, they stick, that was just, they stick you know, to rock like, don't they? Absolutely stick. You know, I'm running yeah, they totally the trails, do. like, you know, you've got so sure. much confidence. Even when I'm hiking, I do, um, I actually do hiking tours here. We live in a, a little cascade, the more mountains. And mm -hmm. the confidence it gives you for just climbing down rocks and big boulders and things like that, they just stick. Right. And, and some of the other rubbers that they, they try actually tried to use, um, they had some other blend or something and it was just wasn't, it just wasn't the same, you know? Uh, I'm like, this, if, if the rock is a tiny, tiny bit wet, boom, they would slip right off. You know, they had some knobbies, but they just weren't the same. So that was the whole thing. Like the knobbies need to be a certain, you know, couple millimeters, like the right size. A big, a big knobby is too big. A little one's too little. It's got to be just right. And they worked with me on that one to get it just right. And once we finally nailed that, it was like, we don't even know what to, we're not going to change. We're not going to change that things now because they're number one, they're selling off the chart. <laughs> Number two is that it works, you know, and you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That's always been my philosophy. So now when you have, have another version of, you know, if, if the Speedgoat 5 comes out, um, which I believe is in the works eventually here, uh, I'm not sure how much we're really going to change, uh, but we'll see. I mean, you know, there's some secrets out there, <laughs> but um, that I can't really reveal, but, but it's, it was great. I mean, it's, it's really an honor to, when a company says, yes, let's do it, we'll support you because you've supported us because you, you know, that is like, that's a dream world. And I, I, I live in a dream world, Robbie, totally do. <laughs> and that, that shoe, the shoe has helped me with that a little bit, but that's the whole idea is that, you know, they went with it. They, they took a risk, so to speak, you know, every time you do something like this, it's risky and they believed in me and, you know, I believed in it. We all believed in it together. And now if you look at it, you're damn well right that the name Speedgoat is pretty good for name for a shoe, right? 
after 25 years, um, I think we did it right for sure. Yeah, it must be pretty cool though when you're in a race or you're at the start of the race and you're looking down at your feet and you look across and there's just speed goats everywhere. And half the field is wearing them. <laughs> yeah, half the field, I swear to God, half this field at Speedgoat 50K was wearing Speedgoats. And when I go run, it's crazy, right? And when I run, today I went for a run up at Alta, which is right up the road from my house. Where I bump into a couple, you know, I see people out there. I saw three or four people wearing Speedgoats today. I always say nice shoes when I see them, you know. They don't necessarily know who I am at the time, but but that's not the point. You know, the whole idea is like, oh, yeah, I love these. When I hear that, it's just like, yeah, you know, like, it's not like, oh, these things suck. It's like, these things are awesome. And it's because I helped. They don't know it, but it's because I, yeah. it's kind of my idea. It's kind of my idea. And that is like, that's like the super, it's, that's just an honor, man. I mean, who, who gets to say that, right? Yeah. There's no other, there's no other ultra runners out there right now. I don't think that have that on their, on their, uh, on their resume. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. The Robbie Marsh, the Robbie Marshes doesn't have the same ring to it. You're, you're, you're wearing a pair <laughs> well, of Robbie Marshes there. Nice shoes. Yeah, well, <laughs> nice shoes. you know, there's still a guy, there's still a tennis player named, uh, oh, God, I forgot. I'm losing his name now. That still has, like, a name on the shoe. And he was from, like, the 70s. Right, cool. And and that's classic, right? He's probably, like, 85 years old now, and he's like, my name's still on that shoe. Um, just like Michael Jordan will be when he's, you know, he's already older now anyway. But it's, it's there's nothing better than seeing people that are wearing them and seeing people that say, I've God, I'm on my 15th pair of speed goats. Okay. they don't divert from any other shoe because that one is the, is the best and you know i again i see it races like so many people are wearing them it just blows my mind when i see that shit it's uh it always cool. it always is a big risk for a runner though or worry you know you've got you finally found the shoe that you want and then the next version comes out yeah. then the next version comes out and you know runners can become very frustrated um, oh yeah and oh, when i did like, too yeah. you're sort of excited and nervous at the same time all oh, the new ones coming out you definitely want to get a pair of the new ones but at the same time you're hoping <laughs> you're hoping they're the same yeah no exactly and like i said ours are you know the two three and fours there's a, there's some real small subtle changes to them but again the the base is the same you know so you're basically tweaking the upper a little bit to try to accommodate some people's comments and you know some people say they weren't wide enough so now we have a wide you know um, we've accommodated those people. It's back in my day when I ran for Montreal, which was my first sponsor starting in early 99, I think they had a shoe called the Vitesse, which, uh, which was, it didn't even look like a running shoe, but it was soft and kind of cushy. And that shoe, they kept the same for probably 10 years. And then they got rid of it. They, they dumped it. They never, they didn't make it again. And that was like the worst thing. Cause I was still running for Montreal and I was like, Oh my God, what am I going to run it? because every other shoe that they made just wasn't really what I really liked. And, and again, they kept changing. If you find one model, there's one called the Leona divide they made, and that one was actually pretty good. Right. But then the next year, Oh, we scrapped it, you know, because we didn't sell enough or because we wanted to change the model. And then it's like, Oh, now what? But you're exactly right. Even with, you know, you can be running, you can be sponsored by one company and run for one company and they keep changing shoes on you. It's tough, you know? Um, the Spigo's here to stay, though. I don't think yeah. they'd be idiots to get rid of that now. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's here to stay. And I think, you know, the tweaks that will be done on the shoe now, will they'll be really minor um, because, again, it, 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 what, wor what works is what matters. Yeah, and I also think that the running boom that's happened four or five years ago or even 
eight to ten years ago yeah there's a whole new field of people that are moving into these longer type of runs like you can hardly get into utmb anymore you know those trails yeah. are perfect for the likes of speed goats and there's more and more people moving into that sort of um sector where and it was timing yeah timing for me you know it was like it was like, man, it was like seven years ago six six years ago whatever when i sort of mentioned the idea of the speed goat then it takes a couple years to make the thing so my timing was again fell into my lap um i got very lucky on that i think i brought that idea up to la sportiva in 2007 when i first started running for them for a couple of years and they oh that's not a bad idea carl but that's that's as far as they went with it and then this happened you know seven or eight years later and they're probably thinking to themselves shit <laughs> you know i probably should have done something with that but yeah, I just had no idea. I got lucky and I got lucky at the right time. And the right person was the president of Hoga at the time. And he liked the idea and it just, it, yeah. you know, it worked. What do you think was uh, your best um, result out of all of those um, wins? Of all the good ones? Well, my best run at Hard Rock was 2438. And that was, that run was. I was bomber start to finish. I don't know if I can go any faster. You know, I mean, obviously the record's two hours faster than that now, but at the time that was a fantastic run for me. Like I've only had probably 500 milers where I nailed it. You know, like I didn't have that bad patch. Um, another one that most people won't remember is the San Diego 100, which was in 2006. And that was the fifth hundred miler I won of this year and it was the third hundred miler I had won in seven weeks Jeez. and yeah and I won Wasatch and Bear and then I went to San Diego and I ran I ran 1548 San Diego and that race it was really a race between myself and a friend of mine named Josh Brimhall and Josh was in, you know super fit fast but I smoked Josh by an hour and he's like dude you were going so fast I just and Josh is fast okay and he was just like you were just on fire and i was on fire at that race until the very until i crossed that finish line and i never felt so good in a hundred miler like i did in that race i just was like i had no pain i mean it was just like i just cranked out 100 miles you know and i finished and then i was like two weeks later i went and ran the javelina 101 that one too because my because i was just on fire you know and that year, that season, 2006, was, you know, I won four in eight weeks, in an eight-week span. And that was, that's, that's unheard of, right? I mean, but that was the period where, I don't know if, you know, I think San Diego was my best race, for sure, in that four that I won. But uh, that, that period of, of eight weeks of my running career was definitely the, the highlight. And I just, you know, I still felt good after that. I went another 100-miler a month after Havelina. And it was in California and it got canceled at mile 45 because I was leading the race. I was looking for a seventh win of the year and I was leading the race. And I felt pretty good. And, but there was a 55 mile an hour winds at the ridge and it blew the tents off the ridge and it started snowing and it got ugly. And uh, so they had, it was legit that they canceled it. But um, that year was, that year was a special year. I mean, it's, yeah. I was your, just. What was your training like that year then? Like, cause there's this, well, some people think, you know, that you have to do. So when I done CCC last year, I actually was only doing 35 miles a week. That's all I could uh -huh. fit in. But I was doing about 20,000 feet of climbing every week in those 35 wow. miles. So it was quite a lot. 
Um, yeah. And I felt really strong during the race because of it. You yeah. Know, I didn't. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. You know, I wanted to be able to race, uh, run 60, 70, 80 miles a week. I just wasn't able to fit it in. So I was just climbing yeah. as much as I could with the time that I had. Um, but you're, you're racing, you don't, you're not somebody who ran sort of like 100, 140 miles a week, really. No, God, no. Uh, my, when, I'm, when I was running my best, I was probably running 65, maybe 70 miles a week. And of those 70 miles, let's just say 70, of those 70 miles, I probably had 15,000 feet of climbing. So it was, a, it was a mix of a fair amount of climbing, but there's also a mix of real running where, where you're still working your turnover. You're still working hard like that into things instead of just like you were doing, you got all this vertical, which made you strong for sure, but it did, probably didn't make you fast, you know, right? So the thing I had a really good mix of, you know, where I live here in the Wasatch Front, we have big mountains in front of my house. Um, 3,000 foot climb is like, you know, a five minute drive from my house, a technical trail. So it really matches the kind of terrain that I've excelled on. So I was able to just use the terrain, you know, that I had here and just take advantage of it. And I, I have a lot of routes here that some are real technical and I can go up, you know, I can go up 4,000 feet, three miles if I want to. But I'd rather not. I'd rather be able to run some of it where I'm getting good leg turnover and working that angle of it too. So my mix of my mix of training in there, and that's pretty much how it was for most of my career until I started to I mean I back off that now. I can't and my body doesn't recover as well as it used to, so I don't run as many miles now, but I'm still running the same type of like vertical gains per if I run fifty miles, I'm still getting ten or twelve thousand feet of gain a week by doing that. I'm just, but it's just, I just can't handle as many miles anymore because my body just doesn't recover as fast. But yeah, it's, you know, if you're going to run your best race, regardless of where you're, if you can train on the terrain that you're going to race on, you're probably going to do well relative to the field because some people will do other exercises to train to be a technical runner. They'll work on their core. They'll do this, that, and the other. But the only way you get better at being a technical runner is to run on technical terrain. Yeah. Don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself. That's just how that's how it is. You just you're just so, trying to get your body to adapt to what you're going to put it through, isn't it? Like, did you do much core work right. back then when you were winning all those hundred mile races, two thousand eight? Yeah, not really. No, I just would just run hard on that hard terrain, you know. And and I do silly things sometimes where I'll pick up rocks and carry rocks for a little while, and that sounds kind of silly, but it's mm. putting weights in your hands is <laughs> when you're running hard is hard. And that kind of works your upper body, but that's not really, I don't think, I honestly don't think this is coming from a coach too, that I really don't think working your core that hard in terms of working on your core stability and all that is really going to make you a better trail runner. It might make you a little less susceptible to injury, I guess, if you kind of twist or turn wrong, maybe that's fair. That's a fair assessment, but I don't think it's going to make you a better trail runner. You just have to, you have to learn how to use proprioception where you can feel where your feet are on the ground without looking at them. It's, you know, I come from a skiers background too. So I've skied since I was two and a half years old. So I'm a pretty good skier. Uh, you don't look at your ski tips. You don't look at the hood ornament on your car when you're driving. You look ahead, right? You're looking down the road if there's cars ahead of you, where are you gonna turn? Or if you're skiing, you're looking at the, the trees that you're skiing through, where your, where your line is. Running on trails is the same way. And once you learn that, once you adapt to learn that uh, method, then you're going to be a lot better 
unfortunately, sometimes like you have a lot of really fast runners that can bust out a 50k in three hours, which is fast. <laughs> but then they get to a technical technical course and they just get, you know, they're they're reduced to the B team, not the A team, because they don't have that technical skill. Um, but that's just something you know you have to want it. You have to be aggressive. You have to be able to take a few risks. You have to be not afraid to fall and crash. Um, I've broken my broken both my shoulders. I've broken wrists. I've broken ribs. You know, so I've what about your ankles? I've crashed a number of times. What about your ankles? What about your ankles? Ligaments? No, ankles are good. Ankles are solid. Damn <laughs> um, you! I've rolled. I mean, I've rolled my ankles before, but I've never rolled. The last time I rolled my ankle, that was actually like a real roll where I was limping for a week. Was at Pikes Peak in ni- like 1993 or four or something, and you know, other than that, I'll I'll, I'll definitely roll my ankle occasionally. I'll it'll pop, you know, something like that. But it always bounces back, and I just keep running through it. Um, it's been a long time, and I think that's just because I've run on trails like that all my life. I just don't, I don't roll my ankles. Just not you know, it. it's just not my. I just why would I want to do that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it does, yeah, right? it but, does strengthen your ankles though, doesn't it? Like, cause like I tore a ligament in my ankle at the beginning of this year. Um, completely ruptured it, taking the dog for a walk along a path, <laughs> not even in the mountains. Um, but getting straight back up in the mountains again has really tightened the ankle back up again. All that movement and strength. Um, well, what a- it's it's better than road running because you're not you're not you're 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 using using all those little micro muscles and tendons and things instead of just like the steady, um, like you would on a treadmill. So it's you, you your ankles, your knees, um. All that kind of stuff is going to get stronger all around your joints by being on um, variable terrain. And I think for a lot of trail runners, you probably see more road runners injured a little more often than trail runners. When well, we all get injured, but at some point, but um, the repetitiveness of the trail with the treadmill is probably more dangerous to get hurt than I think running on a trail, just because you're using everything on a trail, even your core on a trail. You're still balancing yourself, you know. Without um, doubt. What about um, going into a race then, your mental aspect? Do you do any sort of mental preparation or you're just going to bear it when it happens? No, I just deal with it when it happens. Yeah, I don't, that's just, that's just how I do it. You know, like I said, I've learned how to, how to laugh off the bad patches and, and accept the fact that it's going to hurt. You know, I have the tagline, 100 miles is not that far, but I didn't say it wasn't going to hurt. <laughs> uh, right? Can, can you so, think of any real bad patches that you went through that was real, I suppose, in the early days as well? Anything that comes to mind? Well, well the early days, uh, yeah, the early days, I mean, my first Wasatch 100 was a classic, classic race because I was, I was winning a lot of shorter races around Salt Lake. So I was the fast, fast kid around, right? But I wasn't necessarily, I had no experience running 100. It was my first ultra marathon was 100 miler. So when I was running Wasatch, I was just running comfortable. And I was with the leader at mile 39. Okay, so I was running, I mean, he and I went through the age station mile 39 together. I stayed there a minute or two longer than he did. He took off into the woods and he was gone and ended up winning the race. I started going up a hill and my wheels started to deflate. <laughs> so to speak. And as I got to mile 53, which was another big checkpoint, um, you know, there was more deflating going on. Then I was cleaning my feet and then I was sitting around a little longer. I wasn't thinking about quitting, but I was sitting around a little longer. And then I started going up the next climb. And by the time I got another about to mile 60 or so, I was pretty much walking in circles. 
And, and I wasn't running anymore. I was no jogging involved after that point. When I got to Brighton mile 75, I, again, I walked into there and my, you know, my, my pace was deteriorating, getting slower. But after I left Brighton, got to finally get over the, the, it's called Catherine's pass. It's kind of the highest point of the course. I just, I mean, I was just hammered, you know, and I walked and I walked, I didn't eat any food. I didn't, I walked and I had a patient with me at the time and he's like, come on, man. You know, he was kind of cheering me on, but I was like, dude, I'm wasted. And, you know, I had no desire to think about dropping. That was the beauty of it. Is that like dropping? What is that? Who drops out? Right. But I, and I, I got to mile 93 and it was five o'clock in the morning. So like 24 hours into it. So I was still doing pretty well, you know, but, um, we made a wrong turn up a road and just cause I thought, I was the right way. And my pacer, I'd never been that section before. So he didn't really know. And it was marked and everything. We just missed the markers. And uh, we walked for like an hour up this dirt road, gradually uphill, walking slow. And that was probably one of the lowest points ever because I was like, once we finally realized we were going the wrong way, we had to go back to the same spot. And that last seven miles took me four and a half hours with, with all that, that mess up, you know? That was a really, really, really low point. Um, I haven't really, the last time I puked in a race was like 2004. I mean, so I don't really have too many stomach issues. So that's, that would usually be a low point of a race, you know, but I mean, but I, you know, I blew up and bonked a little bit at the end of some races and stuff and got really slow. And, uh, you know, I, I dropped out of, I dropped out of hard rock five times, you know, uh, and most of those were in all, every one of those dropouts was, was mental. You know, I mean, my body was okay to keep going, and it wasn't like I was fighting cutoffs, but it was mental. And those are those are the some of the lowest points ever. The last time I ran Hard Rock, I was, you know, I went there. I sort of didn't really want to be in the race, but I I was entered and I was on the list. And I'm like, all right, I'll go run it. And I just my mental attitude before that race even started was negative, 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 negative. So I got over the first pass, and I was like, I don't even want to be here. By the time I got to Uray, which was 57 miles into it, I was like, I'm out of here. <laughs> you know, take me home. This is the closest way to drive me straight, straight home. And I ended up laying there for an hour and a half with my wristband on. They have wristbands there. Once they cut that, you're out. So I'm like, cut the wristband. The guy's like, are you sure you want me to do that? I'm like, cut the effing wristband, <laughs> you know? And uh, so, and he did, you know, and then I, then I walked out of there. And as, as, as it always happens, when you drop out of a race, once you do it, it finally all kicks in and you say, Oh, I'm okay with it at the time, but you're not really okay with it. The next day you're like, why did I do that? You know, yeah. um, it's, 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 I've had a lot of, you know, some little races like that. Hard rock five, five drops and hard rock is a lot of drops. I've won it five times. So can't argue with that. Can't argue with that one. But you know, then those drops are, you know, they're kind of hard to take because, I know for a fact that every one of those I could have finished if I would have just said, okay, slow down a little bit, relax, you know, just get over the next damn pass and take it one at a time. And, you know, those, those little points are they're tough. I had a bad little point at Leadville in, again, 2006, that big year when I won six times. I ran Leadville that year and I ended up coming in eighth. But when I got 13 miles from the finish line, I got really cold and, I mean, I was shivering out of control and I had to walk that 13 miles, you know, it took me like four and a half hours and that was miserable. <laughs> um, but I got there 
but uh, that was a pretty low point of a race too. That was kind of depressing because I was in second place. I wasn't catching the leader. He was long gone, but I was still in second. I totally could have been second. Yeah, do, um, do you think Leadville was one of the hardest 100-mile races out there? No, 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 I don't think so. I think Leadville's not a hard course. Even, you know, it's not a hard course. There's only 15, 16,000 feet of climbing on that course. But the thing that gets Leadville every time is that, number one, you're at high altitude. So, you know, people come from out of town, and it doesn't matter what town you live in. Unless you live in upper Colorado, higher Colorado, you're coming from lower elevation, right? So you get there. They come. They show up three or four days beforehand, which is a big mistake. Your body deteriorates those first three to three to seven days. So now you're in a bad state already. And then your body doesn't process food at altitude as well. So you, you start the race, you're fired up, you get going, and then your body just works against you because you're at this altitude. And everything's a little bit slower at 10,000 and 12,000 feet. And that's what I think the, you know, the success rate at Leadville is pretty low, like on average. Um, because, again, there's a lot of rookies too, which, which is just fair. But um, it's not, it really isn't a hard race. It's, look at the record. It's 1548, right? If, the rec if it was a really hard race, the record would be at least over 20 hours. Um, hard Rock is a hard race. Hard Rock is, you know, killing Jornet at 2240 is ridiculous. Um, that's a hard race. There's a lot of other, Wasatch is a lot harder than Leadville. Um, it's not as high up, but there's a way more climbing. It's much more technical. Uh, you know, Leadville is just iconic, just like Western States. Western States is not a hard race. What makes Western States hard is it's hot. Um, and and entry. States, I mean, and entry. Maybe, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially now, right? But but Western, you know, I've run it three times. The best finish was 10th, or actually 11th. I was 10th man. I got checked on that one. But uh, <laughs> it's the heat that gets it's the heat that gets people there. You've got 16,000, 21,000 feet of down and 16 up, and it's you know it's what I call California single track, which means it's very it's pretty smooth. There's a little bit of rocks in there, but it's pretty smooth. Um, and the record's 1409 now. I mean, that is ridiculous. You know, um, when you know back in the day when I ran it, when Scott Jurek and I were both sort of at the top of our game in between a 2000, 2010, probably, Scotty was winning Western every time. But Scott only ran, his best time there was 1535, which is great. Yeah. But but 1409 is now the time. And, and Scotty, when he won Western, he was... With the exception of that one time, I think, when he won 1535, he was always over 16 hours. Sometimes it was over 17. I saw a guy win Western over 18 hours one year. And that's just like now, it's like it's a whole different ballgame because the competition is so much stronger, but it's not a hard course. It's the heat that gets you at Western. It's the altitude that gets you at Leadville. But being those two, those are really the two most iconic 100-milers in this country. Um, that's why people are drawn to them. You know, they might think they're that hard, but there's a lot of other courses that are a lot tougher. Bighorn is a lot tougher. Wasatch is tougher. San Diego was tougher. Um, AC 100 is tougher. I mean, now there's like, you know, 150 ultras, 150, 100 milers in this country now. So as opposed to 28 when I started running them. So there's a lot of other races out there that are hard. Yeah. Uh, and it, seems, it seems to yeah. be moving in that direction as well, isn't it? Race directors have become notorious. You have the likes of Lazarus yeah. Lake, and you can see the type of people that are drawn to those type of races. Um, these crazy well, mad the ultra runners. Well, I did, and I did the same thing with Speedgoat. With with Speedgoat, 
you know, my terrain where I train is hard. It's up at Snowbird Ski Resort. It's steep and all these rocky stuff. And, you know, there's all these different 50Ks in the country and stuff. And when I started Speed Goat 13 to 14 years ago, I wanted it to be a, a, a hard race. We heard of sky running, right? Okay. And hard sky running races are hard races. They're, they're tough. They're technical. They're steep. And I wanted Speed Goat to sort of mimic that, that model a little bit. I don't necessarily like the sky running model itself, but, but I like the, but the races I love because they're hard. And so I brought that idea to, to Speed Goat and then sort of like the, the thought of having harder races technicality wise and hilly wise sort of drew to people a little bit like, Oh wow. If you can spin, if you can finish Speed Goat 50K, every other 50K is easy. Right. So we attracted a lot of people to, to, to see that model of having a really hard course. Then we, then the rut 50 K came out, which is up in big sky, Montana, a couple of friends of mine are the race directors for that one. And that's a really good, tough, hard course. Bocanero was a pretty tough, hard course in Squaw Valley, not as high up, but still hard. Um, that it's cool to see that people were drawn to that because it's not just another, you know, rolling easy 50 K, you know, um, the challenge of spinning a 50 K at speed gun finishing under 10 hours is real. I mean, 10 hours for 50 K that's a long time, but, uh, but most of the people finish between, you know, nine and 10 hours because it's hard and they love it. They it's love coming that, across the finish. It's that challenge well. of whether or not, because people are more drawn now to whether or not they can or can't finish, you know, it's exciting to go into a race that's going to challenge you that much. You don't know whether or not you're going to finish. Yeah. And, and people, you know, with speed goat, I try to make it, I try to make the cutoffs doable but i kind of like to make them a challenge you know because if it if it's too easy if you start you know 200 people two hours earlier than the regular start time just so they can finish i mean that that's cool i think it's it's a kind of a cool idea but i still like to see the challenge of like you're gonna have to push yourself to make make it to that tunnel mile 22 by three o'clock you know like i like that challenge and i and you know some people don't always agree with me on that but but that's, you know, it's my race. <laughs> I'll do what I want to do. But it, it uh, makes, it gives people space to grow, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if they don't make the cutoff one year, damn well, right. They're going to come back the following year, maybe train a little bit harder, maybe, you know, figure out their, their plan a little bit better and they'll get the cutoff. And that's, you know, at, at my race, we don't, there's no cutoff at the finish line. Once you reach the tunnel, it's an aid station called the tunnel. Um, we get past that. We'll wait for you to come to the finish. So really that's your, you push it as hard as you can to there. Once you get there, we'll wait. So that's kind of a different, unique thing. You'll get your finish if you make the mile 22. I think that's that's also a kind of unique thing where some races have, like most hunters will have that 36 hour cutoff or 30 hour cutoff or whatever. And if you don't make that, then you're out. Like you don't get to finish. But I think once you reach an intermittent point of a certain place of a race, you should be able to finish whatever your time is. Yeah, we, we have a, I actually set up a race, which is on the 26th of September of this year, and it's called the Summit. This might be a good idea for you, but there's a, it's a loop course, which has got four miles of loop, um, and near 1400 feet, and you've got an hour and six minutes to right. complete the <laughs> loop nine times, because there is actually a, a peak called Disappointment Peak at 11,362 feet, somewhere in the world. Oh, nice. Um, so yeah. you've got 10 hours to complete the nine loops, which is 36 miles and close to 12,000 feet. After yeah. that, you have 
Um, another, well, there's 22 loops in total, 29,000 feet, and that's why it's the summit. Um, you only mm-hmm. summit on the last loop, which is the height of Everest. So mm-hmm. 29 hours and 29 minutes for the 29,000 yep. feet. So you sort of have an hour and six minutes for every loop to the cutoff of nine loops, and then after that, you have an hour and a half a loop. Um, oh, nice. So it's very similar to what you were saying. You know, you need you don't want people sitting down for two or three hours. They need to keep going to try and beat that cutoff. Then hopefully, yeah, if they make the cutoff, then they've got a chance of reaching the summit. Right, and that's the you know that's the that's the cool thing about it. It's you know, it's not just the deadline. It's not not the deadline at the end. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, I like the intermittent cutoff thing. It's kind of cool. I mean, not many races do that. It's kind of a bummer. Yeah, just one one thing then that I really, really struggle with. And I appreciate how much time I'm stealing from you. <laughs> no, no worries. I'm just chilling out. It's all good. And um, one thing that I really struggle with and it frustrates the hell out of me is my nutrition during the race. Now, because I find myself struggling. I've done races up to about 75 miles, which were actually 82 miles because I got lost for seven miles. But that's a different story. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm crashing out in races because my stomach's going or I'm trying to get staying away from them sugary foods but then i'm feeling weak and then you know i'm going back and forward throughout that and yeah. it frustrates the hell out of me because it becomes a death march at the end but i feel great Always. you know i feel amazing but i just can't get the nutrition right and i know it's such a an individual thing and it's it's a learning progress learning progress as well what type of things do you feel on during the race and what helps um, you? I pretty much, yeah, the fuel that I use in a race is pretty, very, very simple. I drink water. Okay, I don't, I don't really do any, uh, any energy drinks. Um, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll drink, it's called Red Bull, an energy drink. I'll drink a little bit of that, but that's not, I don't look at that as like my fuel for energy. Um, my energy is basically coming from gels. Across, pretty much across the board from start to finish. I eat a light breakfast and then I'll do gels every 25 minutes or so and you know most people i mean we're talking 90 percent of people probably will say oh after six or seven hours i can't eat another gel because they're sick of them but see i talk myself into that it's not a problem because that's the fuel that that fuel is well it doesn't matter what kind of gel either they all basically work right so the idea is that it's the sugar energy that you're getting out of it you have to treat it like an iv drip and don't bounce around with all kinds of different things like you mentioned, you bounced around a lot sometimes, but I just keep that same consistent flow of gel and water and all the way to the end. And that's just, I don't have, I've never had really major nutrition problems. My stomach, I don't overfill my stomach. I think a lot of people will have nutrition problems when they eat too much. Um, you can't digest it. If I go back to Leadville, I said, you don't digest your food as well at 10,000 feet. Well, People start, you know, treating each early age station like it's a buffet. Well, you get to the turnaround point, and you're going to, it's going to be this bloated buffet of puke. <laughs> Just going to puke it all up. Um, you've got to, you've got to really sort of stay on the edge of how much you eat and not overeat. And your, your water consumption is the same thing. Um, just because it's hot out doesn't mean you need to drink three times as much you need to keep your body cool and drinking water isn't always necessarily going to keep your body cool. It certainly hydrates you. I mean, that's good. <laughs> Don't get me wrong there, but you can, if you can keep your body wet and cool, like at Western States, when I mentioned that, uh, you, your, your body will work better. It will, it will, uh, 
process the food better by pouring water over your head, putting ice down your back, putting it on your wrists, you know, putting it on the top of my ball spot on my head. It's a great place for ice. <laughs> um, you know, it's like that kind of stuff you come, you do, you learn from doing. And I've just found that when gels were first brought to the market and I'm going to say late nineties, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm rough estimate there, but when they first came to the market, I brought gels to hard rock and I said, I'm going to run, I'm going to run this whole damn race on gel. And I think I ate, you know, 60 of them or something. And I ran the whole race on gel and water and that was it. And, and it was amazing to some of my competitors are like, you ate just gel. I'm like, yeah, no problem. And then it started to graduate where other faster runners were doing this pretty much the same thing. Their diet was generally liquid. I mean, gel is a liquid diet, you know, it's not in a drink, but it's pretty liquid. So, you know, it's going to digest and enter your system really quickly. You know, I, I took salt caps too. So I, I take electrolytes. Uh, that just depends on how hot it is. Uh, I use salt stick or succeed S caps. Both of those are pretty similar in their profile. So I kind of use those, uh, but those are, I have a sort of a rule like every, let's just say it's 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, one S cap or salt stick cap for me is about right. You know, but, but again, that's really individual. I mean, you can, you can have your sweat rate tested, but I think that's, I think the sweat rate test is sort of a, a, a joke. <laughs> because, you know, if it's humid, if you live in a humid state, uh, say on the east coast of the, of the U.S., it's just humid. Oh, it's just hot and humid and sticky and nasty. You come to where I live, where the humidity right now is like 15%, it's an entirely different sweat rate because the humidity isn't fooling you. So that's just my opinion, and I'm, I'm not backing that up with any science. I'm only backing that up with my experience. So I've just, I've just learned that that's sort of the medium, the 70 degrees in one cap, and then if it gets hotter, Instead of going two caps at once, I'll do one every 50 minutes or 40 minutes or 30 minutes, just depending. Western States, I was doing one every like 30 minutes because it was 106 degrees. You know? um, that was just, I was pouring water over my body every time there was a little spigot of water or someplace to get water. I constantly stayed cool. And that first year when I did come in 11th place, I, my body was wet the whole time. I never felt like it was 106 degrees at all. It felt, you know, it was hot, but I wasn't like dying of the heat out there. And I didn't over drink, you know, I didn't drink 40 gallons ounces of water around I drank my standard about 20, 15 to 20. And I just kept myself cool and it was fine. You know, so it's, I, it's, it's, a, it's, it's very individual. Yeah, it is. I suppose it's, and you're changing all the time as well as being an individual, you know, you're different on different days, depending on what you're going through. Absolutely. Um, right. Well, one thing I found was that it was more of a mental weakness that I was consuming too much water or consuming, you know, rather than suffering a little bit, I was looking for a pick me up. Um, sometimes mm -hmm. even with water, my belly would blow out. Um, but I remember one day just going for a four mile run. Um, and I ended up doing, I think it was 20 miles in the mountains and wow. about 12,000 feet, but I only had the same fuel. I only brought enough fuel for the four mile run. You know, right. I was drinking right. some mountain water and things like that on the way. But I just blew my mind, you know. I just consumed about a fifth of the fuel that I generally always did. Right. Um, right. And how does that work, right? Like, how does that happen? How do you? How does that? It's really weird. I've I've seen my wife and her friends. You know, they they're running a fifty miler and they get twenty miles into it. Their stomachs a mess. They're they're crying. They're just <laughs> they're just a mess, right? But they'll go out on a twenty miler with their friends when when it's not a race. And everything is just gravy. It's great, you know. 
Like, why is that? Why can you run 20 miles on that minimal amount of fuel that you had? In the same way, I can reach, for me, if I do a 20 miler, I, I will bring, I'll bring enough fuel, I'll bring enough gels or something to cover me. But sometimes I don't eat them all. And sometimes I'll reach a point where my stomach feels really empty. But then if I don't eat anything, you know, I drink some water for sure. But if I don't eat anything, and about 30 minutes later, that empty feeling goes away. And I don't know if that means I'm burning fat as, instead of carbs. You know, I, I'm not the scientist on that one. I'm sure someone else could probably evaluate on that better than I can. But um, it's sort of, sort of where you get to a point where, oh, I can, I can sustain energy. Like Michael McKnight, one of our friends here in Utah, he ran 100 miler this summer without food. He drank water. Whole 100 miles. And he did it in 18 hours and something. In change, right? No, that was he did that as a little experiment. He wanted to see if he could run 100 miles on nothing. So I don't know what he ate for breakfast, but whatever it was, <laughs> it was buffalo. enough. He ate a buffalo it for breakfast. <laughs> I mean, he stayed hydrated. You know, he, he played that yeah. game. Of course, you got to do that. Um, I don't know if he took electrolytes or not, but um, he, he had no food, and that just proves to you that it's between your ears a lot of times. You know, mm. another another that was a great experiment that he did because. You should interview him someday because he, that was, uh, that was really impressive to, for him to do it. And he did it in 18 and a half hours. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like a 35 hour, 40 hour thing. He, he busted it out, you know? Um, so it's no matter what it is, it's like, if it's between your head, it's possible. It's just your, your body um, is, you think this, it's possible. Your body is just such an amazing tool, isn't it? Like, I don't think we it's understand. It's very resilient. Like it, it yeah. questions, I think how far we've come away from who we really are you know if i go out for a run for 20 miles and it's just a nice jog and i'm suffering i'm sure i, I would have been no good a thousand years ago when we were going out hunting and gathering <laughs> look at robbie like he's wrecked right. at mile 17 already um you know our bodies are designed to do this you know but but our mind is very strong you know i mean the mind has the mind can do a lot of things uh like that with your golf game i mean I, I play a lot of golf so i can always relate these things to golf but because you can play great you can play awesome one day and shoot even par the next day you can be 20 shots different because it's all in your head it's all about how you're swinging the ball or, or how we're swinging the club or whatever it's just the mind the mind is i don't know people underestimate the power of the mind <laughs> um and they worry too much about the science that goes into them too much uh at least that's how i have always viewed it and i've been you know, I've been pretty successful at it, so I can't really argue with, yeah. with the way I've gone about it. So, you know, people have to understand that don't get with all with all of your next races you do, don't get so engulfed in the in the science and the in the nutrition and the and I mean you've got it you gotta have nutrition. You you work on it, but don't get so engulfed in it. Just kinda go do as you run as you feel and, and enjoy it and a lot of times you'll you'll have one really good race and you're like, okay, I'll, then you look back at it and say, well, what did I do right? You know, oh, I didn't, I didn't think about it. <laughs> um, that's usually the best best reason is like I didn't even yeah. think about it. I just did it. Well, the best race that you're and, gonna the best best race that sort of comes out of the hat is the one that just you just showed up for. You weren't really yeah, anticipating absolutely. to do. Um, I remember I won a, a free entry into a marathon. I wasn't training for a marathon at the time. Actually, I was training for an Ironman, but I was doing no running at all. Um, so I went to, had a barbecue the night before, a few beers with a few mates. It was in Edinburgh, Scotland, and I went out and knocked five minutes off my PB. 
And I was like, yeah. how the... Didn't look at my watch, just went out and enjoyed the race. And five five minutes off my PB, I was like, how the hell did that happen? I was running... Right, and you didn't, you didn't, you didn't plan your evening before of like... I was hung over. beers you would have. I was hung, right, o- hung right. over doing the race. So just to finish yeah. then, I do appreciate the time. Um, so you do a bit of coaching. If I was to come to you um, looking to be coached, what does that format look like? Well, for, well, first thing I'll do is, uh, you know, I'll send you a questionnaire. You just give me a, a quick background. I, I don't get real technical about it, but I just get your background of like what you're already, how much you've already been running, um, how long you've been running, what terrain you run on, you know, those types of basic questions age, height, weight, a photo of someone running is, tells me a lot. Um, just, you know, just your body type. And then from there, it's like, you know, what are your goals? You know, you answer all these, these questions to my questionnaire and then I'll just, you know, I try to formulate a plan. I don't do any, there's no cookie cutter plans. Nobody gets the same thing from me. It's always a little different. And a lot of times it's, it's like, how do you maximize your time? You know, because everybody has, everyone's working, everyone has a job, um, you know, Time a lot of times people don't have a lot of your time in. Yeah. Time management is, is mostly the hardest thing because if you have a, you know, like for me, I work at home and I'm able to go run every day, whatever time it doesn't, you know, I have my own free time, but people don't always have that. So you have to try to work their schedule around that to maximize their training. So they're get as strong as, as they can for what they have. You know, you can only get so much out of yourself. Uh, you know, and then, then at that, we sort of formulate like how your plan starts to work with how many miles you're running, what kind of terrain, uh, your vertical gain, your, you know, there's some speed work stuff in there, but it really depends what you're training for. Like you said, when you were doing, you know, 20,000 vertical and 30 miles, that's all you had time for. That was probably the best thing that you could have done is get that vertical just to get strong and don't worry about what your speed is about because CCC is a tough race, you know? It's a, it's a lot of vertical and stuff. So you did the, I think you probably did the right thing right there. Um, but it just depends on who, you know, what your goals are and what your, what your, your athlete level is. If I was going back to CCC, you obviously want to beat your time. So then you have to adapt your training. You know, there's no point doing the same thing because you are going to get the same result, obviously. Um, to a point, I mean, to a point, sometimes I think, you know, if, if you've been running all your life, you probably get the same result. You're right. But if you haven't been running all your life and you're, you know, you're, you slowly become fitter and fitter. If you, if you don't hurt yourself, you don't get injured. Um, you're going to have a peak like my year in 2006, you're going to have a peak year at some point. And then all of a sudden it just gets all go downhill. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, you, you want to adjust your training a little bit. Like I said, you know, with mine, when I was running 70 miles a week, I had a lot of runnable terrain in there too. That might be something you change for CCC. So you, so those areas, like when you go, when you leave, Call the foray and you're running to La Foley, right? It's like 14 miles downhill. It's fast. If you have no speed, you don't try to take advantage of that too much because you can ruin yourself for later. But if you have some kind of turnover in speed, you'll be faster through that. So you've got to practice that terrain a little bit too, you know? Run long downhills. If you're running Western states, you want to do some long grinding downhill descents because your quads are going to get hammered at Western States because the whole damn race, it feels like it's downhill. You know, the time you go uphill, you feel, you feel good because you're walking, but, uh, just, you know, you just got to kind of train on the train you're going to race on and, and try to create some kind of speed. And, and you know, I can help with that. It just depends on, will you do it too? Uh, you know, you can prescribe speed work and how many people do it? 20%. <laughs> that's the truth. Um, that's just how it is. And, you know, you can only, 
encourage and recommend as much as you can. And that's just, uh, the best thing with coaching really is, is really is communication though. Because if you, you know, if I send someone a schedule and I don't hear back from them ever, um, it's kind of, I kind of ask the question, why are you paying me? You know, I, I, I want communication. That's the only way I'm going to help you get better. It's just the, the back and forth communication a little bit here and there when you have a question. And uh, a lot of times those answers to some of those questions can be the difference between a personal best or not, just because it was simple. Oh yeah, I, I, I should do this instead, you know? Um, but there is an element of a, there's an element of a shift, isn't there? Like, you know, when you're taking on a coach and you're, you're now putting a bit of structure around your training, your body has to go through that and adapt. And there's almost, yeah. a, you're, a, the coach is almost trying to get you to shift into the next level to, so you can then maintain that level of training. And that's hard. And I think if I, if I were to make a schedule for myself, it's, I mean, it's myself, right? It's very hard for me to follow it. <laughs> exactly. Because things come up during the day or, you know, things, things happen. And some days you, you're supposed to do, you know, intervals or, or a progressive run or speed work or something. And you just feel like shit. And that's not really the day to do speed work because your body isn't, isn't ready for it, you know? So sometimes you got to adjust on the fly. And that's where your coach can help you is that say, Hey man, I, you know, when you're having, you're supposed to do a speed workout and you're, you're just not feeling and you're feeling lousy, your times are slow, whatever. It's best to just back off and say, it wasn't going for me today. Got my miles in, just cruised, made it a little bit easier rest day. Then maybe I'll work at it tomorrow, depending on what you have forward for the week. And that's where the, the coach can adjust and tweak things like that. And I think that's what people learn from a coach is like, how do I tweak this? If I can't get this day in or the weekend doesn't work with, or I had to, I couldn't run Saturday or Sunday, you know? Um, that's what coaches I think can help the most is, is to keep you on track and uh, get the most out of your body. Yeah. It's important to go and feel as well though, isn't it? This like seven days a week thing doesn't really work that much. Like if you're like, if I'm stronger, some days I might take more vert in or if my legs are feeling tired, I might drop the vert a bit and go a bit longer on the flat. It is nice to have that adaptability within your training. Well, and remember this too, that the body doesn't know what a week is. Yeah right? The brain doesn't know what a week is. Your body only knows now. So when someone says I'm doing 50 miles a week or, or I need to get my 50 miles in this week, so I'm going to go bang out 20 on Sunday because I missed a couple of days earlier. Your body doesn't know that a week is, you know, it's like you don't, shouldn't do that 20 probably. You should just kind of like, it's a rolling average, you know? Mm. And, and it's sort of like when you say doing 50 miles a week, you have to look back to the last eight weeks and say, what was my average? And see, watch your rolling average, just like we're watching these damn COVID numbers, rolling averages, right? It's kind of the same thing. It's just, you can't just say a week is a week. A week is, a week doesn't matter. <laughs> every day is a day, you know, um, is an every day is a new day. And you just have to use that weekly guide as, it's sort of a guide of what you, sh you should try to do, you know, and try to structure it where you get the most out of your, your speed workouts and the most out of your long runs. And it's, Again, it's, it's, it's never a perfect science. It's like avalanches. You never know sometimes uh, when you're really going to peak. But hopefully if you can stay consistent with your training, consistency is the most important thing. And if you can stay with that, um, you're probably going to you know, run your best in most cases. Is there any race out there that you haven't done yet um, that you'd like to do? I know you mentioned the 250. Uh, is that Mohab, is it? The 250. Well, I don't know if I want Moab. Um, <laughs> Put him on the spot there. I know, I know, I know all that terrain down Mohab, there. Moab, Moab. Well. <laughs> Everybody wants yeah. to see speak of Moab. 
Yeah, we'll see. Um, I think I was supposed to run the Superior 100 this year, which is in uh, on Lake Superior up in northern, I think it's Wisconsin. But um, that race I really wanted to run. It was can- Of course, it was canceled this year. And the reason I wanted to run that race in particular is because it's very technical. Um, it's kind of rolling hills. It's not, it's not super big climbs or anything, but it's technical, which sort of fits my my forte. I'm I'm best at that relative to the field in most cases. That's that one's on the list. Cascade Crest is on the list. AC100 is on the list. Um, I'm surprised you still have hundred mile races on the list that you haven't done. Well, you know what? <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to get to them or not. This is the question. The thing is, um, you know, it's kind of funny. I mean, I ran Hard Rock, I think, 12 times. I've run Wasatch 12 times, uh, you know, some other races five or six times. And when you're when you're in that rut when you're younger, you sort of keep going back to that same race. Um, but as I've gotten older, I've definitely bounced around and done races I've never done before. And I've done that because there's nothing, right, at least now in my career, there's nothing better than going to a race, going into it blind, not knowing the course, and just saying, okay, this is where I can put my drop bags, which that's easy for me to get those ready. And then, then you just go do it, you know, and see what happens. And a lot of times those are fun because you don't know where the next turn's coming. You don't know what the, where the next hill really is. Cause I don't study maps. I don't study the, ele- the elevation profile. I don't study, or I don't do like a list of what I'm gonna have in my drop bags. I mean, I have gel in my drop bags. Um, other than, you know, other than clothing, what I would need it during the night or something. But with the exception of the lights, with the exception of that, it's kind of fun to go to races that you've never done before and just show up blind and, and see how it pans out. And uh, hopefully don't get, don't make a wrong turn, but I don't make many wrong turns anymore because when I come to a junction, I actually look in both directions as opposed to some people have their head down and just go and, and screw up. But uh, that learns from, you learn that from experience too. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's, there's, I mean, there's tons of races over in Europe I'd love to do and stuff like that, but I'm 52 and I don't see myself, you know, running 10 ultras a year again anymore. I, you know, maybe a couple. And now this year, everything has sort of gone to shit and, and, uh, I am running one. Well, I'm, I'm on the list to run one in uh, Tennessee and Kentucky called the no business 100. I may have no business being there, but, <laughs> uh, it's a loop course. It's a hundred miles. It's a loop course. It's, you know, 90% single track. It's so it's nice. It's hilly, 15,000 feet of climb. So it's, I, I would look at that as being a very entertaining course for me now because it's, it's in the woods, you know, uh, and it's, it's different. So we'll see how it pans out, but, uh, just a new adventure, just um, a new adventure. Everyone's a new adventure. I didn't mention AT because, um, obviously you've gone through it so many times. I don't want to wreck your head with that. Like I know it took three attempts. It was Scott Jurek held the record before you did. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Um, that is correct. He, yeah. Go ahead. Do you see that as your your proudest moment with all your achievements? Because you said there's sixty one hundred mile wins. I didn't even know winningest was a word until earlier today. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I made that one up. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's it's forty two hundred mile wins. It's sixty ultras. So with with the AT with the AT, I would think yeah that that was something that. It's a pretty proud accomplishment. I mean, it took me three times to do it. The second time I did it, I, I bailed out because things just weren't working right. Um, the first, my first try at it in 2008, you know, backcountry.com was my sponsor. And that was sort of a, it was an attempt at the record, but at the same time, it was sort of like a, 
you know, not a publicity stunt, but we wanted to you know, like give prizes and tell people where I was and people follow me and all that kind of, and that was kind of invasive because it, it just took more out of me mentally than me just being in the moment. Um, but in 2014, it just didn't work with my crew. But 2016, I came back. Red Bull was, you know, 100% behind me. And they said, do what you need to do to break the record, which meant I went to the East Coast three different times. To, I drove the entire AT, saw every road crossing. I made notes for my crew, you know, where the stores were, where the, you know, everything and it took me a long time to do that, but Red Bull was 100% behind me on that. So when you have that support, um, it, was, it was all right. I'm giving it everything I've got. And so when I went back in 2016, you know, I helped Scott in 2015. Uh, I crewed for him for a couple of weeks, and which was awesome. I didn't go there to learn from him because he was a rookie on the AT. Uh, and I knew the AT a lot better than he did. But um, <laughs> But it was great, but he's a good buddy of mine. It was awesome to be with him on the trail and watch him, you know, from the outside, watch him suffer. Sort of, Not to watch him suffer, but watch him deal with the suffering. Just, yeah. he, his attempt was way better than mine. Even though I beat him by nine and a half hours, he he suffered like like no one suffered at the end of this thing. And then when I went back in 2016, you know, Scott came back and helped me the last 10 days. And that was like, you know, the coolest thing to for me to actually get the record I was on the bubble in that, you know, for a while in the middle of that. And then I finally got ahead again. And it was partially because of Scott, what he did when he helped me was in the Smoky Mountains. He did something for me. He brought stuff in where I was able to get an extra 16 miles in one day, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it was just a critical place. So he did that. He, he was a big help. It lifts uh, your spirit though as well. When somebody does something like that, doesn't it? It pumps yeah, energy. I mean, I was breaking you, right? his record. <laughs> yeah. I was breaking. I'm breaking his record and he was like totally there helping me. You should have got, and, should you know, have got it's, tested. Um, okay, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> that's not always, and then, you know, that's not always Scott's thing. Because <laughs> um, he likes to be the winner, you know. I mean, Western States seven times, that's, that's awesome, you know. Um, he's competitive, you know. We're both competitive when we race each other. But at the same time, at the end of the day, it's like, you know, I'll, I'll get you the next round of beaters or whatever it is, you know. Like Scotty and I have hung out a lot uh, and – we're just good friends and helping each other is like the coolest thing. And now that the record has gone down to now it's 41 seven and I don't see anybody touching that for a long time because what Carell did, he, he sort of went hybrid style. So he was sleeping on the trail a lot of times and he was also sort of sleeping in a, in a truck or a van or something at some time. So he, he maximized his efficiency far more than Scott and I did. Scott wasn't very good at all at it. I was much better at it but Carell put it to another level. So what Carell did, and even Stringbean, who beat my time as well, those guys, they took that whole thing to another level. Um, but I can, at least I can say I have the southbound record because those guys both went north. <laughs> so, but you know. But 41 kind of hours, cool. like this thing normally takes people like three months to complete. Longer. Well, 41 days. Yeah, 41 days is like, it takes oh, sorry, more, most people days. actually. Yeah, so mostly, it mostly takes people that through hike that trail. It takes them, you know, some people do it faster than others, but generally it takes five months, Yeah. you know, and that's, and that's doing 15 miles a day and 15 miles a day on the AT on the easiest sections of the AT is a lot with a backpack on. So, I mean, I did the long trail last summer with a buddy of mine in Vermont, which is very similar to New Hampshire, Maine terrain, which is hard terrain. We did 13 miles of just normal people backpacking. Our packs were packs were base weight, 20 pounds, pretty light. And we did 13 miles a day and 13 miles a day was enough. 
<laughs> because it was, we were walking and we had packs on and we had to, you know, set up our tent, whatever in the evenings and the mornings and stuff. And to do that for five months is, I mean, it's damn impressive. You know, I, I hope I can do that with my wife. Um, in a couple of years from now, we kind of hope we, we talk about it. <laughs> um, it's the most iconic, so hopefully we'll do that. It's the most iconic trail in the world. Like to hold the record on that must have been phenomenal. Like, so there's a brilliant video, yeah. um, there to be broken. So that's, that's correct. Isn't it? Yeah, it was, it was, I mean, you're right. It's very iconic. And it's when I broke the record, when I finally put my hands down on the rock and did that, it was just like, Oh God, I finally, I, you know, I got it. And then, you know, but again, the records are made to be broken, right? Like it's, I was cheering, I was cheering string bean on the next year you know like i was wasn't talking to him much but i was like communicating on his on his page and he was posting something and i was so psyched to see him kill it you know because that's just how we are we we want to see people do well i don't i don't want to see someone fail like there's a girl on the at right now that she was going for the record and you know i had my doubts at the beginning and she's not going to get her she just got into maine she's 45 days into maine but you know, she's doing great. I mean, she is, that girl is suffering more than anyone has suffered. She is, she's walking 20 hours a day, which, which means she ain't sleeping much. And on that terrain, she is getting ruined, you know, but she is persevering right now. She's in the Mahusics today. And which is the toughest, she's probably in Mahusik notch right now, which is the toughest mile of the AT as we speak. Um, she is persevering. And I'm, I mean, that's pretty awesome to see her doing is, you know, she's trying to break Corral's record, which I knew wasn't going to happen. But at the same time, she, she, she got hurt early. She kept dealing with it and she's dealing with it and dealing with it. And she's still out there. Um, she's going to be psyched when she finishes. <laughs> Say that. Yeah. Strong, strong woman. Like it's good stuff. Um, yep. I know I just held you. There's just one thing left in my head. Like that a lot of people know yep. about the AT, but they don't know about the Pony Express. The story on the Pony yep. Express is cool as like, um, tell us a little bit about that and I'll let you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, that's cool. Um, yeah, that was a project that I wasn't really all that thrilled about when we first brought it up. Um, so it was 2010 when we did it. In 2008, so back 2008, did the AT and I said to Red Bull, I was with Red Bull then as well. I said, let's do the AT again in 2010. And they were like, well, they weren't really sold on that for, for whatever reason, they weren't sold on that. But the Pony Express Trail, uh, it was the 150th anniversary of the trail, which which they try to like to correlate things like that when they do projects with their athletes, which is a cool idea, you know. So they said, hey, how about, how about the Pony Express? And I said, I said, I'm like, really? The Pony Express? <laughs> you know, like, what's, well, you know, where am I going to go with that? But, but after we started talking about it for a while, I was like, you know what? There's no pressure. They said, how many miles can you do a day? Can you do 30? I'm like, well, I'll do 50 a day. And it looked at me kind of funny, and they're like, 50 miles a day. I'm like, well, the terrain's not that hard. So, you know, I can walk 50 miles in a day without, I'm not carrying anything except a water bottle or two. I've got support, you know. So they kind of looked at me funny, and then they kind of put the whole thing together and a big RV and got the physiologist, and they took blood from me every, every week, and I had to pee in the container and did all these things. But there's no pressure. Back to the pressure thing, there's no pressure for me to go fast. I just like had this guy in the back of my mind. I called him the 50 mile guy that I have to make 50 miles every day and then add on a little more. So I get that much further ahead of him. So I had like this little game in my head, but the terrain was easy. I mean, I, I was done every day in 10 hours um, and for 50 miles or so. So I was doing like, you know, 12 minute miles average. That was fast enough to easily have 
maybe two beers at night, sleep till 630 in the morning. You know, I wasn't rushed. So it was like one of the coolest experiences I've had because there was no pressure. Mm-hmm. And then when I did the hundred miles on the last day, I was just like, I was on autopilot and my body felt perfectly fine. So I just, I'm like, I'll just bang out a hundred the last day and call it good. And then, <laughs> then I'm like, what time do you want me to finish? Now like between nine and 10 AM or I'm like, okay, well I'll just start at one in the afternoon. And I finished at like nine 30. I finished like right on the number. And that's just because my body was in autopilot. And, you know, again, I learned, you know, I was really supported in that one. So I didn't, you know, I wasn't carrying anything. The food was like whatever I wanted. The guys cooked for me and everything. So it was kind of the luxury tour, but it was a, it was a, again, a wonderful experience. And I recovered from it pretty quick because I wasn't really forced to go as hard as possible. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I thank Red Bull for that too. That was really what a cool thing that, that they brought up. Silver 2000. It, it was, yeah, it turned out to be, we on our, on our watch it measured 2064. I think that the initial Pony Express trail was like 1860, but we can't follow, it's not the AT, you can't follow the route. You kind of have to follow the general route um, because um, you go to a lot of private land, a lot of places like that, you can't just cross unless you get permission and stuff like that. So we just kind of, I mean, I went over the Uinta Mountains in Utah when I, I came right by my house and went over the Uinta Mountains in Utah, which Pony Express Trail didn't go over the Uinta Mountains. <laughs> um, it went to the north of them a little bit, but I wanted to go over a real mountain range once, at least once. So I did that, you know, I kind of mixed it up a little. Um, but it was but unique was though. Cool thing about it. I was able to do that. Yeah, the Pony Express though, as the story goes, you know, a horse can go about 10 or 15 miles and then they had to pass um, all the posts. Right over to the next horse they would go another 10 or 15 miles and they'd have numerous horses through the whole pony express and then yeah, yeah. they got the speed goat they should just give you the bag <laughs> let you go um, yeah well no right just give me the mail bag but that was the that was kind of cool to learn that we went by some of those posts that were in the middle of freaking nowhere in nevada right you see this little stone building and that was like the post you know um we saw some places like that we saw some incredibly remote there were some incredibly remote places that I was all by myself when it was starting to get dark. I didn't have a headlamp on me and you know, I'm in the middle of freaking nowhere. And then I'd come around the corner and there would the RV would be, cause I can't see where the roads are, you know? So I didn't really know where I was. Sometimes I got lost once. That was quite the experience, um, <laughs> you know? And, but that was what, that's what makes those things. Those are the stories that you come up with later, you know, like today I got lost the one day that I got lost out there. The one day that Ted, one of the guys supporting us, rolled, he rolled the, one of the vehicles. It was, it was called the Tom car. It's like a little like razor, razor, like four wheel ATV kind of thing. And he rolled it when he was coming down over a pass and I was running ahead of him. And, you know, we didn't tell that story in the, uh, <laughs> in the Pony Express, but uh, that was kind of scary. Right. I mean, he rolls the thing, they flipped it over and it actually got started again. And, he, you know, then we drove that thing back. That thing got back to my house, and we put that away. The thing was worthless. But there's a little crap like that that happened on the on the Pony Express that was somewhat entertaining. Um, my crew didn't get along that well. Um, you know, I don't know. Not that much was really shown on the film about that. Uh, those guys argued. It almost ended at my house because those guys were arguing. Um, I took a day off when I was here in Salt Lake, and I ended up cleaning the RV while everyone else in the house arguing about something. I was like, I, I was supposed to lay down and do nothing. And I was like, I can't sit down, you know? So I wouldn't clean the RV. Um, 
so anyway, yeah, that was a great experience. I'm glad, I'm really glad that I did that and didn't just say no to it because that totally made that perception of hundred miles is not that far even easier, you know? Yeah. And you had to finish with hundred miles and it being your signature, obviously. That's why I did it. I mean, I'm like, yeah, like what the hell, you know, might as well get this thing done. I tapered a little bit the last couple of days, <laughs> but, but, uh, yeah. yeah, if you want to call 45, 35 and 25 a taper, but, uh, that's what I did before I did it. But yeah, I was on, I was on autopilot and it was, it was really cool. It was a great experience. Carl, we're going to wrap it up at that. Um, I am being so selfish here because we're just in the groove now and I could talk about running all night long. <laughs> I've got Carl. It happens that way. It's me. okay. <laughs> yeah. And that's awesome. Like you totally recolored, not recolored, but colored your life with a hundred mile runs and those adventures. And for me, that's what it's all about is that adventure and that experience that you're getting more so than a race and your whole life yep. has just been one big experience and one big adventure. I think that sums it up very well. It's been, it's been good. <laughs> I get nothing to complain about. If I ever complain, smack me because it's, um, it's wrong. Looking forward to seeing how you get on your 250 uh, mile race. That'll be interesting. Right. <laughs> yeah, me too. I think, yeah, we'll see. We'll I'll see how it goes. I'll be screaming at the, at the dot watch and just embrace the pain, Carl, embrace the pain. <laughs> right, right, right. I'll be laughing. <laughs> That's excellent. Carl, let's stick this out on uh, Saturday. I really appreciate it. Right on. All right, anytime, man. If you need anything else, just let me know. I will do, boss. Thank you very much. Cheers. All right, cheers, Robbie. Another cracking episode. Carl is absolutely everywhere I look at the minute. I literally just received my latest pair of Speedgoats this morning, and they have nailed the new wide fit shoe, which is huge for me. I received a few pairs of Drymax socks yesterday to compliment them, and you guessed it, they are named Speedgoat. This shit just doesn't happen. I think we can all learn from Carl's lifestyle and balance in life and his focus into the sport of ultra running. Talking about balance, I have to apologize for taking a few weeks break from the podcast. It was needed, but we are back in full flow with a great lineup on its way. Can't thank everyone enough for your continued support. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not follow us on Facebook, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, iTunes, and other places I'm not even aware of. Until next week, stay safe and keep on moving.